0: We've already prayed over the service, so let's get into it. We're, uh, several weeks ago, I began uh, a series on the blood covenant. This is based on a course that I used to teach in school of ministry that covered 10 weeks. And they were 10 packed weeks full. We ran over some of the nights. And uh, you taught this a few years ago, I think in, uh, in a revised vision of the school of ministry over eight weeks. But I'm doing trying to do this in five weeks. And we've already got two weeks under our belt. So we're going to get into this and and we're going to try to cover... Uh, a good amount of material so I'm having I'm struggling to try to see what it is that I need that can leave out and still cover the essence of what we want to talk about so because it's been several weeks just very quickly review uh, we're studying the blood covenant this is a covenant that God entered into with Abraham and we'll see before we're over Abraham was kind of a placeholder because God's ultimate desire all the plan was to enter into this covenant with Jesus for us And that's the last week, and you don't want to miss that week. That's where everything kind of comes to a head. We talked about that God entered into a blood covenant with man because God wants to convince man, show man why God can be trusted. God in himself ought to be able to be trusted, because as he says about himself in Numbers 23, he's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass? We talked the first week. God's word is truth. So God cannot lie. So we have every reason to trust God, but God understands our frailty. God understands that we've spent our whole life living among people that don't always tell the truth or even if they intend to tell the truth they're not always able to carry through on it so we've learned growing up that we cannot fully trust ourselves to others and, they, and some may, may have been able to earn your, or you've been able to, they've been able to earn your trust but even then in the back of your mind you're never quite sure but God wanted, to, wanted man to know that we could trust Him because only with a basis of trust could, we, could man enter into a relationship with to a God first of all you can't see and secondly, and this is more important, a God who's holy and just and righteous. So how do we, or imperfect, how do we who fail, enter into with confidence a relationship with a God who's perfect, who's holy, who's righteous, and you can't see? How do we do that? So God is, this is one of the things I want you to understand. God is a master communicator. God I want to tell you a secret. Don't let the people that didn't come in here know this. But God knows what he's doing. Now, none of you wrote that down. So it must have been, God knows what he's doing. He knows how to communicate with man. He knows where we are. He knows how to meet us. I just read a scripture where he understands that because we're flesh and blood, so he had to send his son in flesh and blood in order to redeem us. And also to be able to be a merciful high priest. And I'm to be careful because I'll get off track here. So the purpose of the covenant, blood covenant, was to give a sense of certainty to man in his relationships with God. And what God did is God chose a practice that had been established among ancient people for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was well known in the time of Abraham. And there were different types of covenant. I won't go back into this. But the highest form was a blood covenant. And we mentioned that a covenant is more than a contract. A contract is an exchange of promises, but a covenant is where you give something as a pledge to back up your words. And a blood covenant is the highest type of covenant because you give, you pledge your life as your security that you will that you will perform your word. So what we're going to see tonight, God pledged His life, God pledged Himself, so that we would know that He would perform what He said. Excuse me. All right. So we talked about different types of covenant. And, and we're going to, the essence of a blood covenant, and we're going to get into that more tonight, the essence of a blood covenant is two separate people, two separate groups of people, families, tribes, nations, now become one. And the only true example of that we know of mankind in our culture, and that's under severe attack, is, is the covenant of marriage, where two now become one. Two, a male and a female, a male and a female, a female and a male become one. And it's only in that context that God authorizes those two human beings to partake of a physical act that's designed to produce new life. Because it's only in that context. Covenant union security that God can entrust a new life to be come into this world and to be raised. That's what God designed. That's not what we've done. Well, tonight, what we're going to begin, we're going to look at is what does it mean to us that God has entered into one of these blood covenants with man? What does it mean to us? And there are several things, several points we're going to make under this. And then we're going to look in the time we have left at two examples. And if, we, if it goes over to next week, that's what we'll have to do. First thing, what does it mean that God is made is in covenant with man? Number one, because of what a covenant is, now listen carefully, that means God has made a total commitment of Himself to us. God has made a total commitment of Himself to us. That's hard for our minds to grasp because we don't make total commitments to, to anybody else but ourselves in most cases. Okay. And, and using the example we've used as a, as a kind of a, 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 what a, a, blood, a, a covenant is where you send something along as a guarantee, God has sent along with his promise himself, he backs it up with himself. It means that God, this is so important in our faith, I told you the first night, that if you begin to grasp what this blood covenant is, it will change your faith life, because the essence of covenant is when God entered into a covenant with us, He gave along with that covenant, at that time, everything God was going to give to us, everything God was going to give to us. What does that mean? Biblical, that means God has already acted. God has taken the initiative. Biblical faith is only a response to what God's already done. Here's where that becomes important because what we think prayer is is talking God into doing something. Now I'm talking about prayer to believe something for yourself. We think what we would have to do is we're trying to talk God in to doing something for us. And you'll understand that. You'll know where you are but just listening to your own prayers are you bargaining with him? God if you do this then I'll be faithful and come to church every Sunday or read my Bible are you telling God why he ought to do something? because if you're telling God why he ought to do something then you're trying to convince God to do something which means you don't yet believe he's already done it and here's the problem with that, what if I'm not very good at convincing? what if I don't have a good enough reason? what if I really haven't been all that good today? what if I'm not in faith enough. This is where a lot of people struggle. I don't know that I'm in faith enough. And the problem isn't that we're not in faith enough. The problem is we have our faith in the wrong thing. We're trying to have our faith in our faith instead of our faith in a person who's already made a covenant commitment to us. You you look like my head's upside down or something. I'm going to keep at this because this is so important to get. And you'll see this as we go through this tonight. The famous scripture on the prayer of faith, Mark 11:23 23, and 24, Jesus, teaching his disciples about faith, said, Whoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Now notice it doesn't say, Ask God to do it. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Ask God to move the mountain. Now a mountain here was referring to a physical mountain, but the mountain for us refers to a mountain in your life. Some obstacle, some stronghold, some situation that's in your way, that's causing you a problem, speak to that problem and tell it to be gone. Verse 24. For, for therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you when, you, when you pray, believe that you, in Greek it says, have already received them, and you shall have them. Notice the difference in tense. And this is what, where so many people struggle with the prayer of faith. They think the prayer of faith is asking God to do something. But the prayer of faith is simply to receive something God's already done. And if you're not convinced He's done it, you may not have confidence to receive it. I'll give you an example of this. The woman with the issue of blood. She's in the story of Mark chapter 5 where Jairus comes to him and says, My daughter's at the point of death. Jesus said, I'll come and I'll heal her. On the way, there's a woman that presses through the crowd, touches his garment, and when she touches his garment, he doesn't know who she is because later he turns around and said, Who touched me? And the order of this is very important. The Bible says, She touched his garment she felt power going into her, King James' virtue, it's power going into her, and she knew and felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Jesus now turns around and says, who touched me? Which means he did not know who touched him. And then there's a little exchange, and finally she comes and falls down in front of him. And the disciples said, how do you know somebody touched you? There's a whole bunch of people around touching you. He said, this touch was different because I felt power go out of me to this one touch. So there were other people touching him, but no power went out of him. So the power was present in him to heal, but only one person received the healing. Why? Because she said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. She went there believing that that, the, the, the healing for her was already in him. All she had to do was touch him, and she was made whole. And one of the most important verses in healing, Jesus turns and says to her, you know, woman who touched me, she explained it, whatever. He said, woman, your faith has made you well. What did her faith do? Her faith gave her the confidence to receive something that was already given to her. You following me? All right, Ray is and a couple others are. Okay, okay. Another example. John chapter 11, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, and we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but this man's been dead four days, and his, one of his sisters says, Lord, if you roll that stone back, be careful, because he stinketh. <laughs> they didn't embalm back then, his body would have already begun to smell. That didn't stop Jesus. The tomb didn't stop Jesus. Four days dead didn't stop Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't go to the Father. He does. He talks to the Father. But He says why in John chapter 11. He says, Father, I'm talking to you about this so that they'll know when this happens, you did it and not me. But He doesn't say, Father, would you bring Him to life? He speaks to a dead body and tells him to come forth. Now the really interesting thing, is that this body is bound up from the toes to the head, in very tight linen, that is soaked with a material that begins to harden, becomes like a cocoon, and he came out, which I don't know how, but if you can raise him from the dead, I guess you can move him out. My point is, Jesus didn't ask the Father to do it. Jesus acts acted as if it were already done, and He acted and spoke in faith that way, and as a result, there was a connection between what God had provided and someone to receive what God had provided. You use that principle every day. You plug a hairdryer or a toaster or some electrical instrument into the plug and the power and potential that your electric company has already delivered to your home. And all it takes is somebody with the confidence that the power's there to plug it in. Now Monday we lost our power at home for two hours. And I didn't go around turning lights on because I knew the power was not there, so I didn't go around trying to plug things in. It was useless to plug it in because I knew the power wasn't there. But when you know the power's there, you don't think about it, you just plug it in. And faith should be that simple and that easy. But because we don't understand what God has already done, we're trying to get God to do something that He's already done. So the first, the first result or implication of God being in a blood covenant with us is He's made a total commitment of all that He is and has to us. The last verse we'll give you is in 1 John 5, 14, which says that this is the confidence that we have before Him. This is the confidence we have before Him. That if we ask anything in accordance with His will, Oh, pastor, how do I know what's in His will? He wrote it for you. If it's in her, if it's in here, it's His will for you. If we ask anything that's in accordance with His will, listen to this, we know He here's heard us. So he, if it's His will, He's already heard us. And if we know He's heard us, we know we already have the request that we've made known to Him. That's the confidence that He wants us to have. And the reason we can have that confidence is God doesn't decide when you pray whether or not He wants to give it to you. He's already provided it. It's the receiving on our end. Okay, the first principle, God's made a total commitment of all He has and all He is to us. You meditate on that and it will change you. Number two, this is God has given us a hold or a claim on Himself. This drives religious people up the wall. He's God. How can you have a claim upon Him? You can't if He doesn't give it to you but if he gives it to you you can have it because it's his will what do I mean by a claim? God has voluntarily limited himself to act only in line with the covenant what we can receive from him does not depend listen carefully what we receive from him does not depend on whether he wants to have mercy on us or not see religion says oh God have mercy on us God I need this God doesn't think in those terms towards you and me, God's already had mercy on us when He sent Jesus to the cross. God's mercy was poured out on us on the cross. So when you come to God, you don't, don't have to doubt whether He has mercy. In fact, Hebrews 4:12 says oh, 4, uh, 15 says, "Come therefore boldly to the throne of grace, that you may say mercy and grace to help in time of need." Four sixteen. 16, excuse me. OK. See, religion bases what God does for us on our works, on two things, our works towards Him and the mood He's in. Because here's the problem, if you think when you ask God for something, He has to be merciful to you then, what if He's not feeling like that today? What if He's like we are, He has a bad mood? What if He's bored with all the requests you've been giving to Him? What if I say, look, you know, talk to somebody else. What if, you know, we say, or more is what more realistic said, you know, you ought to know this by now. You keep bugging me for this. That's not in God's vocabulary, it's not in his thought pattern. God has already poured his mercy out on us. When he sent Jesus to the cross. So his mercy is here. It's extended. We don't have to dis- worry one day whether God has mercy. In fact, it was Lamentations 3, what is it, 23. says his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Again, God's not like us. God doesn't have moods. God doesn't get bored with us. God doesn't get frustrated with us. I don't know why he doesn't, but he doesn't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the blood covenant is intended by God to give us confidence that this is true for us. You all here? Okay, you're just listening or what's going on here? All right, praise God. See, see, if we're depending on His mercy, there's no certainty there. What if I (laughs) say, this is the thought, well, I don't deserve mercy today. Think about what you just said or thought. Mercy means you got what you don't get what you do deserve. So, <laughs> it's exactly right. You never deserve mercy. He had mercy on us. His mercy was extended to us when he entered the covenant and his mercy is contained in the covenant. It pleases God when we draw on the covenant. It's religion, and I've had to deal with this, it's religion that, well, you know, I've, I've bothered him enough, I've come to him for enough. No. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. It pleases God when we come to him. It pleases God when we need him. It pleases God when we turn to him. In fact, God's, one of God's big issues with Israel in the wilderness is they didn't trust him for their needs, they trusted themselves and other things for their needs. God wants you to trust Him for your need. God wants you to turn from Him for your need. God wants you to dream and ask big. God wants you to do that. God's the one that says, I will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can think or ask according to the power God. God said that He'll do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can think or ask. God's the one that said that. We don't ask big enough because we think of God in human terms, not as God has revealed Himself to us. And as a result, we walk around with this little bitty God and this great big problem. And as a result, we'll worry. But if you begin to realize how huge and enormous God is, and then you look at your little bitty problem compared to God, you won't be worried and afraid because God can handle it. God can handle it. What He can't do is make you trust Him. But if you'll trust Him, all things are possible to him who believes. It reminds me of a man whose son was filled with demons. And he came to find Jesus, but Jesus was on a mountain with uh, three of his disciples, and then that's where Moses and Elijah appeared to him, and his body was transformed into his glorified state. In the meantime, this father took his son to the other nine disciples, and when Jesus comes back down, the disi- this man brings him to Jesus and said, to, said, Rabbi, I brought this boy, my boy, This is what the devil does to him. I brought him to your other disciples and they could not cast the demons out. Oh, this is so powerful. Jesus did not say, well, if it didn't happen, I guess it must not be God's will. But that's what we do. People pray and we don't get a result. Well, I guess it's not God's will. Jesus didn't say that. He says, bring him to me. And then the father brings him to him and says, well, if you can, please deliver my son. And Jesus, what did you say? If I can? No, the issue is all things are possible to him who believes. The issue isn't what I can do. The issue is what can you believe? The issue isn't what I'll do. The issue is how big can you believe? How big can can you believe? See, religion narrows everything down because we try to define God in human terms. And God wants to expand. Oh, I've got to be careful here. God wants to expand. I can't do that. He's trying to get Abraham to accept this covenant, and Abraham's stuck on the idea that, wait a minute, I don't even have a, an heir I'm 75 years old and I don't have an heir and you're talking about I'm the father of many nations? And God doesn't say, here's how I'm going to do it. God brings him out in the, in the field at night and has him look at the stars and get lost in the enormity of the stars. Get his senses filled up with it. Expand his vision of what God wants to do. And once he's forgot about himself, And he's lost in the enormity of God's stars. God says, see all those? Yeah. That's the number of your descendants. That's how big I'm thinking. Religion thinks in terms of what God can't do or what God won't do. Okay. The blood covenant, this concept of covenant is what allowed Moses to stand up to God. Um, Let's go to Exodus 32. This is where the children of Israel are performing idolatry down at the base of the mountain while God with his finger, is writing the Ten Commandments and the first one is you shall have no other gods before me. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Indeed, they're a stiff-necked people. Next verse. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Moses is face to face with God and God is ticked off. God does get angry but he never loses his temper. But God wants to fry these people. He wants to turn them into a big puddle of grease in the middle of the desert. That I may consume them and I may make of you a great nation. In other words, I want to start over with you. Now keep in mind, these people have been nothing but trouble to Moses. Moses. And Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? He's talking covenant with God. He's standing up to God. God has not said, you know, I'm consent. God God's not saying, you know, I think I ought to. God's angry at these people. And he's basically, Moses, step aside, I'm going to fry him on the spot, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses stands between the people and God and says, why is your anger, go back to verse 11, why is your anger so hot against your people who you brought, I, this almost reminds me of a, an argument between two parents. It's your child that did this. No, it's your child that doesn't listen to it. That your people, who brought you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand, verse 12. This is God, Moses oh, is talking to God. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mouth, and to consume them before the face of the earth, to turn your fear, He's saying, For, relent from this harm to your people. That word relent means repent. Moses is telling God to change his mind. Where does this boldness come from? And he's standing face to face with angry God. Because he understands the covenant that God made with Abraham. He understands the certainty of the relationship that he has. And when you understand that certainty and that confidence in the relationship, you can be real with God. You can argue with God. Argue with God. He says, come and argue with me so that you may win. It's the only person I've ever gotten in an argument with that said, argue so you can win. My wife's never said that, though. So. Nor have I. All right, we've got to move on. We've got to move on. Okay. So the first thing is God's made a total commitment of all He has. We're talking about what the covenant, God and covenant with man means to us. The second thing, He's given us a hold or a claim on Himself. The third thing, and this is the essence of covenant. It is the union of two parties in which they both become one. Last time we went through the steps of what they did to enter into the covenant, and we showed you that they exchanged names, and I showed you how God and Abram exchanged parts of their names together, how God took part of his name, Yah, and stuck it in the middle of Abram, so it's Abraham, but God took Abraham's name to Himself, because from that point on, God refers to Himself, I am the God of Abraham, the God who belongs to Abraham. That was now part of God's identity and part of His name. But that was just a precursor, we're going to see, to the covenant that we have. In John chapter 17, Jesus says in verse 21, let's go down to verse 21, Jesus is praying here. His prayer is that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. So Jesus' prayer, right before he's arrested and goes to the cross, is that, that God, as God was one with him, that the two of them may be one with us. There it is that they may be one, so we'll be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they almost also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. So Jesus' prayer, we'll see at the end of this, our studies, about what this union means. Now here's what it means. Here's what it means when, 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 a, when a couple gets married. Here's what it means when two parties enter a covenant. It means all the assets, liabilities, talents, and weaknesses and strengths are combined. So Anita and I got married. All my assets and all my liabilities became her assets and her liabilities. I didn't have any assets, but I carried a whole lot of baggage into the relationship <laughs> from my childhood and from my upbringing. And so she had to now deal with the baggage that I brought in, in my personality, in my way of thinking about things. That was now Hers. In the same way, I inherited, I got certain things from her. So we're now combined to be one. Now let's bring this over to combined one with God. That means, all, listen, that means all of God's assets, all of God's liabilities, all of God's strengths. All of God's weaknesses then heavenly now are ours. The other side of this is all of our assets, all of our liabilities, all of our strengths, <laughs> all of our weaknesses are now His. Paul learned that secret. He says, I'm strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned the secret, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I glory in my weaknesses because in my weaknesses, His strength is made perfect. So God gets all my assets and I get all His assets. Let's see, who gets the better end of that deal? I get all his liabilities, he gets all my liabilities. What are his liabilities? Well, actually he does. His liabilities are the lost. That's something that's a loss to him. But he gets all our liabilities, our sins, our failures, and our weaknesses. So they all become one. This restored man back to the relationship that God originally had with Adam. Adam. All my debts and all His, all His debts and all are mine. Now, this is why we don't have to work ourselves out of our own mistakes. Some of you, that'll hit on the way home. Some of you, you might not get it for a while. We think when we've made a mistake, we've now got to work our way out of it. But your mistakes are His. He didn't commit them, but they belong to Him. Doesn't He say, to roll your cares over on me? Your cares are my cares, because I care for you. Your cares, your concerns are His cares. And His concerns, because you're one. Something can happen. I was talking about this with my wife this morning. I was trying to to, to explain some of this to her. I was saying, when when I went through those cancer treatments three years ago, you went through them with me. You didn't just sit there as a bystander. You felt what I was going through. It affected you. Why? Because you and I are one. Whatever she goes through affects me. Whatever I go through affects her because we're one. In the same way, because you're one with God through Christ, whatever you go through affects him. Doesn't throw him off track, but he's, he's, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses. He's touched with those things. Why? He goes through them with you. Says your tears are, are stored up in bottles. I don't know if it's physical, but, but he knows the hurt and the pain you're going through. He's not some distance taskmaster waiting for you to go through these difficult times and wanting to see how well you do with it. He goes through it with you because He's one with you. That means whatever trouble you get into, God's there with you to get you out. The only expression, Bless God, I got myself into this mess. I'm going to get myself out. But first of all, that doesn't bless God. And that's just Pride. It's still all about me. It means all my assets are His. Some people get upset at the tithe. That's just the first tenth. It's all His. We're just stewards of it. Hebrews 6.10 in the Amplified says, In conclusion, be strong in the Lord. Be empowered through your union with Him. So what is the significance of being in a covenant covenant? With God, first of all, uh, it means that uh, he's made a total commitment of all he is and all he has. Number two, he's given us a hold or a claim on himself. Number three, it's the union of two parties into one. Number four, it means God is for us. Now that's that's a term that can be, well... Are you for the, you know, who are you for in the next election? Well, I'm, you know, it's for somebody So, Or for, I hope my wife is for me more than that. And I want to, I first of all, uh, Psalm one eighteen six and 7 says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. We're talking about his attitude towards you. He thinks of you all the time. Psalm 139 says his thoughts towards you are as numerous as the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world that's how often God thinks about you and how much God is concentrating on you Romans eight thirty one and 32 if God be for us who can be against us the next verse says he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all How would He not also together with Him freely give us all things? What shall we say to these things? We don't have time to go back. The first 30 verses talks about the enormity of what God's done for us. And Paul concludes, if God's done these things, how much is He for us? I want to read to you a quote. Oh, by the way, these notes are posted on our website so that you can review them and go over them again. But I have a quote here from uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on verse 31 and it's in in my notes if you look online. The ground of of this challenge is God being for us. In this, He sums up all our privileges. These include all that God is for us. Not only is He reconciled to us, He's so not against us, but in covenant with us, He is so engaged for us, all His attributes are for us. Think of what His attributes are. All His promises are are for us all that he is all that he has all that he does is for his people he performs all things for them he's even for them when it seems to act against them and if so, who can be against us so as to prevail against us so as to hinder our happiness be they ever so great, ever so strong ever so many, ever so mighty ever so malicious, what can they do? While God is for us, and we keep in His love, we may with a holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. Let Satan do his worst, he's chained. Let the world do its worst, it's conquered. Principalities and powers are spoiled and disarmed, and triumphed over in the cross of Christ. That's like a song we sang. Who then dares fight against us while God Himself is fighting for us? And this we say to these things. That is the inference we draw from these verses of God before us, who can be against us. He's not just passively on our side. He is actively working on your behalf when you don't even begin to, when you're sleeping, when you're awake, when you think He's distant and far off. He is actively working on your behalf, actively working on your behalf. Well, what does a covenant require of us? We've talked about what it, God puts into this. Well, it's equal. It requires a total commitment of both parties of all that they have and all that they are. All we had was our life. What's the expression we use, when I gave my life to Christ? It requires us to give all of ourselves to Him. And you have surrendered your life and all that we have to Him. 1 Corinthians, verse 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And Matthew 16, we'll talk about this later this year, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life loses it, whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave Himself for me. Amen. And let me make a statement. You've already, if you're in Christ, you've already made that commitment. Just like 52 years ago, I made a commitment to my wife, but I had no idea what I was doing. I was just 21 years old. I just wanted her. That's all I knew. I was tired of driving eight hours both directions. I just wanted to be with her the rest of my life. I didn't want to spend a moment away from her. That's all I knew. And whatever I got to do to do it, you tell me I'm here to do it. That's all I knew. I didn't understand the commitment I was making to her. I just knew one thing. We were never going to get divorced. But I just, I didn't understand it. But still, she took it at that commitment. When you made that commitment to God, when you pledged your life to Him, He takes you at your word whether you live it out or not. And now the rest of your walk with Him is learning how to live that out. I used to think I had to be perfect in this before I'd entered into this covenant. But God takes you, that takes you at your heart's intentions. And then the grace of God allows you to grow and you're living up to that commitment. Praise God. The problem is not that you've not made the commitment. The problem is living it out. And that's something we learn to do every day. Well, I'm going to... We're going to give you two examples. I don't think we'll get through them tonight, but we'll start on them. The first is Abraham. What I want to do is take some. I've got two. I've got four of them I can teach. I'm going to show you these principles in real-life stories with real-life people that you know. And Abraham, we've got several examples we could use from him. of him. But he's an example of a man who walked in the fullness of this covenant. It was real to him. After all, he's the one that God brought it to to begin with. God had pledged himself and all that he had to fulfill Abraham's needs. The only limit on what Abraham was to get out of it was of how much of himself he trusted to God. Let's go to Genesis 22. This used to be a very troublesome story to me until I understood covenant. And this is one of the most exciting stories in the Bible now. This is why I'm going to include it. God came to Abraham... And said, I'm entering into a covenant with you. Abraham says, what am I going to get out of it? Since I don't have an heir. I'm 75 years old. My wife's 65 and she's barren. And we're both too old to have babies. And God said, I'm not going to talk to you about a baby. I'm going to talk to you about nations coming from you. And God required them to believe him. And after 25 years, Isaac's born. There's a bunch of other things that happened in the meantime. Now Isaac's grown up. So Abraham is now in love with this boy. He's the child of the promise. Abraham had to exercise his faith to to receive this child. And, And now this scene happens. Now after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. What's going to happen here is God's going to require Abraham to go on a three day journey and offer this boy up as a living sacrifice. Literally, to bind him up, put him on an altar, stab him with a knife, and set his body on fire the way he would have some animal. And what happens is Abraham's faith never wavers. They get to the best of three days to the, the base of the mountain, and Abraham turns to the men that were with him and said, You wait here. The lad and I are going to go up and perform and worship God and we will return. On the way up, the boy says, Dad, I'm taking an inventory here. I see the food, I see the wood, I see the, the, the coals for the fire, and, but I don't see the, the animal to sacrifice. And Abraham's answer was, God will provide himself a sacrifice. They get up on there, Abraham doesn't hesitate. He binds the boy up, lays him out on the altar. I've often thought about Abraham's Says, What about the boy's faith? And Abraham lifts the knife up. See, God is requiring of him the most precious thing he has, that God gave him. God required him to trust him for it. God gave it to him, and now God is asking for it back. Sometimes God gives us things like talent, an anointing, a ministry, a gift, and, and God will test us and say, I want it back. I want you to sit down and put it down for a while. I went through that. I want you to sit it down and put it down. I went through that for nine years. Set it aside so that I'll give it back to you when I want you to have it the way I want you to have it. It keeps him first. But see, God, Abraham's a man of covenant, and you know, God's a man of covenant, So I used to read this story and think, Abraham's thinking, I'm going to lose my boy. That if you read in Hebrews chapter 11, that's how he was believing it all. It says, Abraham never wavered because he never doubted God's first promise that through this boy, you will become the father of many nations. Abraham never questioned. Imagine this. God's told him one thing. Through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. And it's this boy. It's not Ishmael. It's not somebody else. It's this boy. And now... I don't know, 20 years later, now God says, I want you to take that boy, the only means by which my promise has come to do, and I want you to kill him for me. Most of us would say, get behind me, Satan. That's the devil, that's not God. But Abraham knew God's voice. And these two things look like they're absolutely contradictory to each other. They're going to crash and the dream of what God gave him is going to be destroyed. But Abraham never doubts God because he didn't doubt the covenant promise God had made to him. And in Hebrews chapter 11 we're not going to put it up there. In Hebrews chapter 11 it says about Abraham... That he believed, if necessary, listen carefully, if necessary, God would have to raise that boy from the dead because of the promise that God had made to him. And the moment he starts to bring the knife down, an angel speaks to him and says, Stop. Now I know that you reverence me. Now I know that you're in covenant with me. Now I know that everything you have is mine and then a ram. So all the time they were going up one side of the mountain, God's provision for the sacrifice was going up the other side of the mountain. Now that's a nice story from the Old Testament until you realize that's the same mountain that several thousand years ago, the Lamb of God went up that mountain. Because God was duty-bound now. Because Abraham... Committed his end of the covenant, God was duty bound for whatever Abraham was going to need. God was required to put his own son up to pay for what Abraham needed. And what did Abraham need? He needed someone to die to pay for his sins. So God was covenant bound to put his son on that cross, on that same hill, to pay for the sins of Abraham and for all of his descendants that's how real this covenant is I'm going to start the next story but I probably won't finish it but we'll come into the next one I'll introduce it David and Goliath which is 1 Samuel 17 somehow the notes I have up here aren't the notes I think I gave everybody Okay. First Samuel 17. I'll give you the background. Israel is at war with the Philistines and they're at an impasse. On one side you have the Israeli army and King Saul who stood about seven feet tall. So he stood over everybody else in the army. On the other side you have the Philistines and they have a warrior named Goliath from Gath. Goliath, they estimate different computations, somewhere between 9 and 12 feet tall. So he's the biggest guy on the battlefield. He has armor on him that weighs about 125 pounds. He has a shield, he has a, what's called a buckler, which is like the Captain America, looks like a trash can lid, okay? And for those of you who are not Captain America fans, and then, then he has, but he has in front of him a shield bearer. And a shield was as tall as a man, so it was about six feet tall. And then the man's in front of him, then you've got a distance, and then you've got Goliath with all of his armor on, which included this mail, which was like a a, a screen netting that, that was hard to penetrate, and bronze coverings over his shins, a helmet that was thick, bronze helmet and a, and a, and a, a, a breastplate that was about 125 pounds. And they're lined up. And I'm just going to give you a few verses, then we'll, I'll just give you enough of a taste to come back next week. Let's pick up... Um, well, let's go down. Verse 3. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistine named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's about 126 pounds, my Bible says. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels which is about 16 pounds. The head of his spear weighed 16 pounds. And a shield bear went before him. And then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel. That's important. And said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to meet with me. So notice what, notice what Goliath How he's calling the name he's calling them. This becomes very important because the devil talks to you. I'll talk to this group. The devil talks to you. Maybe he doesn't talk to them, he talks to you. All right? And he'll tell you who you are, he'll tell you what you can do and what you can't do. He'll remind you of all your failures because he wants to weaken your confidence and he wants you to look at yourself and get your confidence in yourself. And this is what Goliath is doing. He cried out to the armies of Israel, why have I come out? Am I not a Philistine? You the servants of Saul. So he says, your leader is Saul, and you are the army of Israel that belongs to Israel. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So, Goliath is pretty confident because there's nobody in the battlefield as big as he is or as well armed as he is and he knows that the enemy on the other side are afraid verse 10 and the Philistine says I defy the armies of Israel this day to give me a man that we may fight together so he's defying the army of Israel of a nation everybody with me? And when Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So here's the scene. You've got the professional Israeli soldiers over here under the command of their king and their general Saul. And they're encamped over here. On the other side of this valley, you've got the Philistines and their champion Goliath, just as the Bible describes him and there's this valley in between. Verse 11. When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Don't tell me words aren't powerful, because the devil uses them all the time. Goliath is telling them who they are and what's going to happen to them, and they sit here, professional soldiers, and listen to the enemy tell them who they are and what's going to happen to them. We're going to see later on, probably next week, this happened twice a day for 40 days. Eighty times. Think Eighty times over a month this one man came out and told them that he defied them and he was going to destroy them because they were only in the army of Israel and Saul was their king and the professional Israeli soldiers sat there and listened to it 80 times and never did anything except get afraid Verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephraimite of Bethlehem and Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced the years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone down to follow Saul to battle, and then it gives the names of them. Verse 14. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. So the scene here is David is the runt, the young kid. The young kid wasn't old enough to go to war, so he was left with the father's flocks out in the wilderness to take care of them, but his big brothers were old enough to go into battle, and they were the professional soldiers. Okay. And David would occasionally, verse 15, go and return to Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem, and the Philistines drew near and presented them forty days, morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son David, David, Take now your brothers an ephet of this dried grain, these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at camp. Carry them to in other words, take this care packages to your brothers, because they're out there on the front line. Verse twenty. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep of the keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded, and came to the army as came as the army was going out to fight and shouting for battle and Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against army David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers and we'll pick up here next week because what you're going to see is David had a concept of covenant that made him look at the exact same circumstances exactly the opposite because David... Understood the covenant that he had with God through Abraham. And then we'll go into, uh, and then we'll begin to go into uh, some of the other aspects of the blood covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that there's a covenant that you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to study this and meditate on this, that the reality of what you've given to us, the reality that you held nothing back, The reality that in your Son, everything was done for us on Calvary. Everything was provided that you're ever going to give us. And so, Father, we don't have to talk you into anything. We just need to receive for ourselves what it is that you have given to us. We ask you for the grace to learn how to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Before we close the service, we're going to do one other thing. We're going to receive the Lord's tithes and our offerings. But if, you, if there's anyone here tonight and you've never given your life to Christ, I know almost everybody here, we did not have any visitors tonight, but just in case there's somebody here, you've never given your life to Christ, I want to pray for you tonight. But I need you to let me know that you'd like me to pray for you.